Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to have you back. Happy to be here myself. We open each seminar, each edition of this podcast with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement that seminar is launching and is now in session. Today's poem comes from the pen of the great Chicagoan and longtime poet laureate of Illinois, Gwendolyn Brooks, and the poem is called Paul Robeson, a tribute to a dazzling artist and activist and lifelong freedom fighter. That time we all heard it, cool and clear, cutting across the hot grit of the day, the major voice, the adult voice, foregoing rolling river, foregoing tearful tale of bale and barge and other symptoms of an old despond, warning in music words, devout and large, that we are each other's harvest, we are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. That's the great Gwendolyn Brooks writing about the great Paul Robeson. Let's continue with our second regular feature, a free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a few minutes and write without stopping. No need for edits or revisions. Here's today's prompt. Without any reference to formal degrees or grades or test scores, what are the qualities of an educated person in a free society? Are you an educated person? What's the evidence? Okay, start writing and I'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. I want to now dive back into a piece we'd already just begun last time. Part language arts, part history, part current events. Unpacking the word itself. What is freedom? Let me begin with a quote that I find both provocative and revealing from Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. This is the quote. And men rejoice at being led like cattle again with the terrible gift of freedom that brought them so much suffering removed from them. You know, you, you hear that and you say, what? Wait, freedom is a terrible gift that brings suffering? I think our common understanding is that freedom is a universal aspiration, something each of us and everyone we've ever known or ever heard about values and cherishes, a condition that equals happiness and peace of mind. Well, maybe and maybe not. Freedom also means taking responsibility. It means risk and precariousness and ambiguity. The great French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre tells a story of a graduate student coming to him in occupied France during World War II with a fearsome and formidable dilemma. My mother is deathly ill, the student explains, and I'm responsible for her care. 
but my father is collaborating with the Nazis, and in order to account for that crime, I feel I must join the resistance. What should I do? After much consideration and discussion of pros and cons, Sartre says to the student, it seems that you must choose. The student is entirely unsatisfied. You're the great philosopher. I came to you so you could help me choose. Well, Sartre continues, that's precisely the difficulty of every authentic choice. In fact, it's the problem of freedom itself. Every yes is a no, every no a yes. And you yourself and no one else will be responsible for the choices that you make. You must choose. You've been no, no help to me at all, says the furious student. I'm going to go instead to a priest. And Sartre responds calmly, very well. Which priest will you choose? It turns out we pick our priests to take the terrible gift of freedom off our own heads, to disperse it, or to blame the consequences of our choices on someone else. I tell this story whenever I'm asked for a specific kind of advice. For example, years ago, my 20-year-old niece came to me and we had coffee. She took me out for coffee and she wanted to know if I thought it would be okay if she moved in with her boyfriend of one year. And I told her the story that Sartre told. I said, you know, why have you chosen me as your priest? You already know the answer you want and you've come to me. You could have gone to your mother, my sister, or you could have gone to your grandmother, my mother, but you would have gotten a different answer, or at least you think you would have gotten a different answer. And she laughed and she said, well, so you do think it's okay. And I said, sorry, I'm not going to get you off the hook. You're going to have to choose and take the consequences. And she did choose. And all these years later, she's married with two grown kids. But that's the point. We choose our priests. This is why Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish thinker and writer, refers to, quote, the dizziness of freedom and famously asserted that a life can only be understood backward, but can only be lived forward. How shall I act? What shall I do? What do I believe? It is dizzying. The perennial contradiction between we and me, between the collective and the individual, is a basic human tension with vast so social, cultural, and political differences and dimensions. But it lurched violently forward in our country in 1980 with the Reagan revolution and a decisive move, move towards me, the, the, the one and only. The Reagan revolution had its own racist dog whistles, its opposition to any concept of collectivity or the public, its weaponized individualism, and its anemic libertarian definition of freedom. Public safety became own a gun. Public education became a product to be bought and sold at the marketplace. Public health was reduced to a commodity sold over the counter, accompanied by a warning, take care of yourself. The word itself, public, in many contexts became racially coded. Public welfare was not a term hurled at corporate tax write-offs. Public housing didn't refer to tax breaks for real estate developers, and public aid never meant farm subsidies. St. Ronald Reagan, godhead of the right, and the icon to whom every Republican leader bends a knee and genuflects piously to this day, famously said at his inauguration, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. And that's exactly the dogma we're suffering together now in COVID-19, but in all realms of, of our social lives. And that's the orthodoxy we have to scrutinize, analyze, and I think resist. Today, talk of freedom is pervasive and weirdly off kilter. 
free trade and the free world, free markets and free exchange, freedom to refuse stay-at-home orders, especially if you're white, and parade unmasked and armed at state capitals. But freedom often feels abstract and distant, assumed but not available for active participation. Personal freedom, our self-proclaimed and celebrated rights and choices, our assumed autonomy, our assistant independence, is a paradox. Free to drive anywhere, we find ourselves stuck in traffic. Free to speak our minds, we don't have that much to say. Free to choose, we feel oddly entangled. And free to vote for any candidate, we to too often experience a Tweedledum, Tweedledee befuddlement. Most of us, of course, are entirely dependent on others for a living. We have no voice and no vote in what will be produced, why or how, or who makes the rules, or who profits. We experience the flattening impacts of white supremacy, of sexism, of structural forms of injustice baked into our American DNA. And as well, we experience the pacifying effects of a mass consumer society, the sense of being manipulated, lied to, shaped and used by powerful forces. We hear all around us market fundamentalists defending their freedom to extract profits through capitalist markets unfettered by public input or government regulation, all the while promoting the idea that the purest forms of freedom and democratic living can be easily reduced to a question of shopping. We're not entirely determined, of course, but neither do we enjoy absolute liberty and unrestricted choice. No one chooses their parents to take an obvious example. No one chooses a nation or a tribe to be born into. Like everyone else, we're thrust into the going world, a world already underway and not at all of our own making. And somehow, somehow we must choose who and how to be in this brief crack of light lived between two infinities of darkness. And closing our eyes, refusing to see any options whatsoever, that in itself is a kind of choosing. In some situations we might exceed, in others we might refuse. So here we are, we're situated and we're free, and we have to negotiate the space in between. So our next segment is guest speaker, artists, authors, activists, after hours. And today we're very excited to be joined by the wonderful Crystal Laura. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Crystal. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'd like to talk to you a bit about yourself, about uh, your book, um, Being Bad, and then a bit about the situation we're living through. Uh, but first, tell us a bit about yourself. You're a professor at Chicago State University. Say more. I am. This is year, I'm coming up on year 10 as a professor of educational leadership at Chicago State. You're kidding um, me. 10? I know, right? Time you were, just flies. You were a student um, of mine 10 years ago. My isn't God. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so it's, it's pretty close to, to a decade. Um, it's been a fun ride. I, my work there is mostly focused on um, helping people who are on the road toward the superintendency think deeply about the world and um, bring lenses of justice and equity to their work as, as administrators and leaders and practitioners, which is always a fun and interesting challenge that I learn from every single day. Um, 
Um, Shad State is also where I learned to swim. It's also where the, the first person who got an advanced degree in my family um, you know, graduated from. It's also in my neighborhood. So, you know, um, Chicago State holds a special place in, in my heart. Um, I'm also a writer and uh, a mom and uh, someone who thinks a lot about um, preserving myself as a human in order to, to be here for the good work that needs to happen in my family and in the world. And um, which means that I'm a vegan and I'm a yogi and um, I, I, I try to, to take good care of myself <laughs> and I try to be a good human. That's great. That's a, that's a full-time job in itself. And uh, you're an artist of your own life trying to be a good human. We've known each other for about 15 years, so it goes back, uh, but it's great to see you today. Um, I'd like to invite you to tell us a little bit about your book, Being Bad. I, I was there from the, from the beginning of that, but I think it's a, a, it's a profound work. Maybe you tell us a little, about the, a little bit about the origin of it, how you came to write it, what it's about, what, what you learned from the process. Yeah, so um, Being Bad, My Baby Brother in the School to Prison Pipeline is inspired by, as the title suggests, my brother, Chris who um, I just saw last night and um, it fills my heart to see him in the real world um, because not very long ago, I didn't get to see him in the real free world. I got to see him over and over again in jails and prisons throughout Illinois. Um, so this book really is a precursor to him um, becoming incarcerated in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And it's really my attempt to make sense of how it could be that a young black man um, in and around Chicago could be so disconnected from, from institutions that are supposed to be designed to support him and nurture him and love on him, how, could be, how he could be so disconnected from those institutions and, and then be wrapped up in um, systems that are designed for his institutionalization and for um, living a life of, of retribution and, and, and um, so this book was something I started under your tutelage mm. which is um, a beautiful thing to reminisce on I miss being a, a full-time student <laughs> um, but in any case I was at the time that this was beginning I was teaching at a high school on the west side of Chicago for formerly incarcerated folks. At that time, the, the school was called St. Leonard's Adult High School, and um, now it's called Sister Jean Hughes Adult High School. And, you know, the, the work that I was doing there was I was teaching some history classes. I was teaching some FM history classes. I was teaching um, communica communications classes, and these were all two folks who had not finished their high school education. So this was not a, you know, a GD program is really a, a way to complete what they started, but got interrupted because they got locked up. Um, so I was teaching there and also taking odd jobs because I was a broke doctoral student and that's what broke doctoral students do. Um, and another of my odd jobs was kind of subbing and finding ways to just hang out in Chicago public schools. So I had these three things that kind of happened all at once. I had my brother who was really having problems in school and getting into a lot of trouble in the streets. Um, I had the, the students who I was teaching at the high school who were formerly incarcerated folks who were telling me all kinds of stories that just seemed 
um, to resonate with me, to connect with me, to sound familiar to me. And then I had these students who I was interacting with in um, Chicago public schools as a, in, in a variety of capacities, but usually as a, as a sub, I taught summer school also. So I saw some real clear connections between those, those three kinds of people or three mm. different stories. And uh-huh. um, I wanted to make I felt like there was a connection and I wanted to write about that connection, but there are things in universities that make it difficult for you to do you and make it difficult for you to, um, to say what you think and, um, kind of cut the shit. And, and, and so I struggled with that for quite a long time. And actually I wrote something entirely different. I wrote like three different things that danced around this idea of the school to prison pipeline. Mm. Um, and wasn't about my brother at all, at least, um, you know, explicitly. It was always about him underneath yeah. the underbrush. But it was really only when I started studying with you and um, my network grew of people who, you know, who really focus on connecting the personal and political and really don't work to make, you know, distinctions between those two worlds and understand that you show up as a whole person wherever you go. Um, and it was really that moment that I began to see, like, wait a minute, no, let me, let me write what's really on my mind and let me really try to make sense of what's going on at my home. And I think if I do that in an authentic way, in a real way, in a way that feels like it's beginning to articulate what's on my heart, that that in, in itself will speak to other people's stories and their, their lives. And I bet some people will see their, their brothers and their cousins and themselves perhaps in the stories that I tried to tell authentically. So this book... My first book is about um, the stories that I accumulated through conversations with my brother, through conversations with my parents, my sister, through looking at old newspapers, um, clippings that were about the school systems that he navigated, through talking to uh, school resource officers. I talked to anybody who would talk to me about my brother and his background in order to piece together retrospectively what could have led to the moment that... um, we ended up at, which was essentially him getting into a lot of trouble legally and eventually um, heading off to prison. So um, I mentioned when I first started talking about the book and the title of the book that I I got to see my brother yesterday in the in the free world. And so, you know, the span of that, the time since I wrote that book has been about five, five years, six years. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's enough time for me to be speaking now from the scar rather than the wound, um, but he's home and so am I. Wow, the scar and not the wound. That's pretty impressive because you mean the scar never really goes away. The wound mm-hmm. may be healed, but the scar doesn't go away. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. There was I, I, There's a kind of distance that at least enables me to communicate without bursting into tears, and that took a really long time. I get it. Uh, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, um, so... so you really write this book, Being Bad, um, and it's about the school-to-prison pipeline. How do you see that pipeline now, and what do you tell teachers who are working with kids like you were and like Chris was? Um, what do you tell them that they can learn from the kind of deep dive you did into this this uh, phenomenon of the school-to-prison pipeline? Yeah. 
Um, the school to prison pipeline to me, when I wrote the book, I was really just trying to make sense of it. I, I, not to be honest, I wasn't entirely sure that I knew what the hell I was talking about. And I used the book to try to get as clear as I could, but no book is a happy ending. If we're being honest with ourselves anyway, as writers, like we're not trying to tie a neat bow and make sure we have all the answers. We're trying to nudge the needle a bit and we're trying to get clear about what it is that we, we don't quite understand. So in the time since I finished the book. And, you know, spoiler alert to the folks who may read the book pending our, you know, our post our conversation. Um, I don't end that book with a neat ending. Right. Um, and it's not intentional. It's just what it is. But in the time since I finished the book, I think I've become a lot clearer, uh, at least about how to articulate what I think I've learned. And part of that just comes from a lot of time talking to other educators, people asking me blunt questions about the school to prison pipeline, me reading a lot more. Um, but the school to prison pipeline is essentially, um, it is a, a, uh, it is a pathway that is paved for vulnerable young people with the support of lots of other people and institutions. So when I'm talking to educators, I get even more specific. I say that the school to prison pipeline is the result of school policies, practices, and processes that we as adults create in school spaces and that young people have to navigate. And the result of those school policies, practices, and processes often means that rather than creating spaces, educational spaces, learning spaces that young people feel whole and happy in, instead these are spaces that young people need to recover from. So it gives us a frame to think about like, what, well, what does that mean actually? Well, then we can keep talking very specifically about um, the, the school policies, practices and processes that researchers, that youth activists, that young people themselves, that educators, that all of us are beginning to um, rally around in terms of clarity that man, we've actually had on the record for a really long time that certain ways of, of dealing with student behavior have been really problematic for a really long time. What's relatively new, I think, is our clarity as writers and thinkers and activists around the kind of creativity that we have as educators um, with the ways in which we manage student um, behavior. So oftentimes it's surprising when I talk to educators about um, how our curricular choices are often um, connected to the ways in which we manage behavior, right? Like those two things aren't entirely separate that there's a such thing as curriculum violence, that you can create a whole set of plans that actually are, are inflicting what you might call learning lacerations or school wounds on young people who are really just trying to come up and see classrooms as mirrors and windows, right? They wanna come into a space and see reflections of themselves and their real lives. Um, and they wanna come into a space and be able to see a bigger world outside of that space through the prism of their real lives. And when they get neither of those, <laughs> when, they, when they don't feel that, that learning spaces are created for them by them, um, then that's another opportunity, I think, for us, a missed opportunity for us as educators to affirm young people as and schools as spaces where young people belong and instead encourage them to look elsewhere for um, the, fulfilling the basic need of um, belonging and safety and affirmation. So I get real clear with educators about lots of specific things that we could be doing differently. Um, and I think that's really just, again, uh, I've been able to develop that kind of clarity with time and in lots of conversations with other educators who are really committed to doing right by young people and who want to 
kind of collectivize together and think together about what that could look like. Say a little more about what, what kinds of things folks can do and, and, and how they get framed. I mean, you talk about curricular wounds. What, what are the things that, that prevent those wounds or that go in a different direction? Yeah. Um, this is always interesting and fun. Uh, it's, I, I think it's important that we start, before we start thinking about policies and practices, that we start thinking about how we think and I know that sounds like hella meta um, and, <laughs> and, and, and maybe a little bit too, you know, philosophical for the moment, but just stay with me. I think so much of what we do is shaped by how we think and how we talk. So if we want to start thinking about what we can do by way of new policies, new reforms, et cetera, to really support young people and make sure that we're not creating or nurturing or supporting young people along this path, my path way to prison and instead really creating opportunities for greater participation in our, our democracy, then I think we should be thinking like, okay, what are the ways in which we talk to each other, talk to ourselves about young people, and what are the narratives um, that, mm-hmm. that enable that kind of speech, right? Mm-hmm. So I think focusing on teacher talk, how we talk to ourselves and how do we talk to each other is like really, really important. Lately, I've been really into... Um, social media spaces, not actually participating in them so much, but rather looking at them like a researcher and thinking about just observing the conversations that happen um, Mm -hmm. in, in such spaces. But anyway, I think that if we think about young people in ways that are problematic, um, racialized, gendered, sexist, uh, homophobic, xenophobic, if we are thinking that certain populations of young people won't do, can't do, uh, don't have the capacity to do, don't have parents who support them to do, don't come from communities and families and schools that um, enable them to do, if that's the kind of deficit um, thinking that's grounded in all kinds of assumptions about dysfunction and defiance, if we assume not the good in young people and their families, but we assume that there is something inherently wrong with young people, then there is absolutely no wonder why um, we call them bad, we call them troublemakers, we call them class clowns, we call them, um, you know, one book that inspired my, my first book was Bad Boys by Ann Ferguson where she documents that young people, young black boys as young as nine and 10, my oldest son, as you know, Bill is 10. So I know what 10 looks like. So I, I can visualize the scene that she writes about, where she says that they're young black boys as young as nine and 10 years old in this school who are described by school adults, the people who are supposed to be there to serve them, right? The people who are supposed to be there to, to treat them as, as if these babies are their own babies describing them as unsalvageable and bound for jail, sometimes mm-hmm. in their presence. So the idea that Zach, my 10-year-old, is being described this way just, like, hits me right in my soul. Yeah. So, you know, that we, the, our capacity to think about young people in certain ways that are unhelpful and damaging and damage-centered and um, moving away from a pedagogy of love and a pedagogy of justice and a pedagogy of joy... Um, and then inform our speech, the way we think about folks shapes the way we speak about folks and the way we speak about folks then shapes the ways in which we interact with, with people and the, the shapes our thinking about 
and the ways in which we do policy, practice, and process, right? So those th three things to me, oh my gosh, it's driving me nuts. These three things to me are connected. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can talk about what does your discipline policy look like? We can say, what does your curriculum look like? We can, um, we can ask about the politics of the teacher's lounge, which by the way, every time I talk to a rookie teacher, I'm like, you better stay far, far away from the teacher's lounge. Um, because that, yep. you know, oftentimes that's where, that's where, you know, a lot of this hype, this, these narratives are, are crafted and circulated, right? About who's going to be on your roster next year. Good luck. You know, um, I'm pretty sure so-and-so is going to drive you nuts um, with all these stories just get passed down. Um, so we can talk about what's the culture of your space? What does the climate feel like? Who's, who has healthy relationships and who doesn't? I tell you, Bill, this moment, this moment of being in absolute crisis <laughs> as a, as a glo global you know, community, I think really reminds me so much of lots of things, but two things in particular. One is community and one is care. Mm. Um, I have... I'm so, so, so lucky and I, I, feel, I feel really lucky to have as an educator, but then also just as a human to have as a principal connecting and like, and trying to, trying to, to band with folks through a collective. I've been so appreciative for my kids, teachers. They've taught me so much over the past two months about the importance of creating healthy, sustainable relationships with your students and with their families. Um, and then also like we're in this moment where everybody's thinking about self-care as community care. And I feel like two months ago, I would have said that message and shouted, shouted it from the rooftops as a yogi, like we should be taking care of ourselves and people would be looking at me like, you know, how yep. selfish is that? You're a hippie, but now I feel, right? Yeah, You're a hippie. But, it, but now I think we're in this moment of a whole lot of hippies where, you know, we have a greater capacity to see that, um, you know, cre creating an abundance in yourself, generating an abundance in yourself enables then to take better care of the folks around you. And, you know, that too, when we're talking about the school to prison pipeline, if you are unwell, <laughs> if you are unhappy, if you are coming at this job because you've been doing it the same way for 10 years, for 20 years, and that's just what you do, and you're, you're the senior in the building, and you have your tenure, and that's just, you know, if you're coming at it with dogmatism, you're coming at it with, um, you know, with, uh, without a sense of um, curiosity and uh, interest in being a student, even as a teacher, right, like continuing to be a student, then you know, I think we, we need to have a conversation about that. In yeah. fact, what I often tell people when I'm on the road, um, what I often tell folks, quite frankly, first I tell them to please excuse the Chicago and me, and then I tell them that if you are not joyful, if you are not coming at this work from a place of pleasure, then there are lots of other professions right. because we have babies who need people who enjoy this, this, this opportunity this essential work of teaching. So you say a pedagogy of love, justice, and joy, and you talk about communities of care. In a certain way, I mean, I would think that the opposite of that is what you're fighting against. Is, and, and, and really the opposite does not allow you to be a free person. I mean, if it's all hatred, anger, uh, injustice, 
the sense of being wronged. How do you be a free person in that? And in some ways, you're you're advocating a pedagogy toward freedom, toward absolutely being, uh, being a fully yeah, developed human and, and a free human. Absolutely, three dimensional, fully human. Um, part of what I think is necessary when we're thinking about teaching a pedagogy of love, justice, and joy is that we focus on criticality. So, like, not not so much the capacity to develop well-reasoned arguments, right? Because my audience is largely educators, right? So we are educated. We are highly credentialed. We got experience and all that. So I'm not talking about that. But I think, you know, criticality in the way in which we think about um, justice and, and liberation, that we think that there are ways in which you can think about the world that, in, in, that enables you to constantly rethink and consciously um, push against the way things are and really reimagine how things can be otherwise and, mm. and asking those kinds of difficult questions. Well, we have this policy where if you, and this, and you know this, Bill, this is a thing, oh, we have this, this dress code policy that if you are, if you come to school as a student and you have locks in your hair, again, as my 10-year-old son does, if you have locks in your hair or if you have braids or twists or anything else that really resembles being um, a black person in America, <laughs> that it is against the rules. We have school districts that have on record, on paper, that it is against school rules to show up that way. So if you are, in, uh, if you are not a critical person, Right. You might say you might have all kinds of excuses about why that's totally reasonable. You want, you know, you want kids to be alike. You want to develop a sense of continuity. You want I mean, I'm actually even struggling to think of why somebody would think that's cool. But a critical person, on the other hand, would say, hmm, who does that hurt? Who does that marginalize? What kinds of stories are we bringing into our school policies? What kinds of racialized prob problematic histories are we reinvoking? Are we recreating? Mm. Um, how does that make young people feel? How does it make the young person who actually has the locks feel? And then what does that mean for other students who are watching this one student be plucked out and ostracized and pushed away, right? So these are the kinds of critical questions that someone would ask. Um, so I think criticality is essential. I think part of criticality is being clear about the fundamental non-negotiable principles through which you do your work. So rather than coming at teaching like, you know, oh, I love the kids. Okay, cool. That will only get you so far. So what else are you doing <laughs> in teaching, mm -hmm. right? What, what else is bringing you to this incredibly challenging but incredibly rewarding experience that is being a teacher? What is it that's, that is driving you so that when all the shit hits the fan, when, you know, when we're in the middle of a pandemic and nobody knows what's going on and you've been told to go online, but you don't know anything about that. And you've been told like when all this stuff is crazy or whatever, you can imagine the next version of crazy because we will get there. Um, you need to have something that's holding your feet to the ground, right? Like how are all 10 toes staying to the ground mm -hmm. if you just show up because you love the kids? So I think that if we are coming at teaching from a, a place of love and justice and joy, then that means we need to be clear about whatever the fundamental non-negotiable principles are through which we do our work. Now, you know this about me, um, Bill, that, that yoga is life. Um, so... It's really easy for me to then see that this core connection piece as a person who's really into the wisdom of the body, 
um, and, and into fitness, I think a lot about the strength of physically your core and how like the tiniest of movements, just me gesticulating while I'm on the phone with you, how all of these movements are passing through my core. And if I don't have a strong one, then um, the body will compensate. It, might, it will compensate with my lower back. It will compensate with my knees. It'll like do other things to really catch up and make up for the fact that my, my, my inner core isn't solid. I firmly believe that the same is true educationally. So physiologically, that's true. But I think the same is true educationally. That If you don't have at your core a set of non-negotiable principles through which you do your work and you just show up any kind of way that somebody is going to get hurt. Yep. So criticality curriculum that is grounded in young people's real lives, um, care and a sense of collectivity and sustainable relationships. I think that those four things could really um, create learning environments that young people want to be in and that we as educators want to help co-create. Wow. I, I can't tell you. Every time I talk to you, I learn so much. I'm over here taking notes. I really appreciate that, Crystal. I want to I wanna hit one more thing before we have to come to an end, and that is that uh, I know your brother, Chris, mostly through your writing and through knowing you very well, but I've met him a couple times, once in county jail in Cook County and once outside of county jail. Uh, he's, a, he's a lovely guy, and I want you to just tell me quickly, uh, I was so happy to hear that he got let out of Illinois State Prisons just before the pandemic blew up in Illinois, so he he escaped that kind of uh, that kind of death house that's that's been created. Um, but he was in for what almost a decade. Um, close he was to... he was in for he was in for six years. Oh, only six years. Over okay. six, he was in for only six years. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to tell him you said that. Yeah, easy know. for me to say. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, when we were just talking yesterday over over dinner, he was telling stories, which he hasn't done. I haven't asked. I've, I've kind of waited for him to, you know, I want to just follow his lead. I don't want to go in with all kinds of like weird questions about what it was like, but although right. I'm really curious about what it was like, but I assume that those things will come out when he's ready. So yesterday for the first time, something came out where he was talking about um, the politics of using the phone, right? Mm. So throughout the six year course, there were lots of moments where he was straight up frustrated like why didn't you all answer the phone and of course because I'm out here in the free world quote I'm out here in the free world I, I don't think about things like I missed the call like I know we'll talk again very soon of course I want to talk to him but like it, it wasn't tragic and and I knew that he would be frustrated but then of course we would talk you know a few hours later and then that'd be fine so just yesterday he's telling us the story about the politics of the phone right mm. and I'm I, it blew me away to think about the kinds of resourcefulness that you build inside, the kinds of communication skills, like the, a whole new code and way of thinking and being that you have to um, figure out, adapt to, learn, respect, teach to other younger people who come in or newer folks who come inside uh, that just kind of blew me away. But my point is, I, I don't know much about what it was like to be to, for him to have spent the last six years there. I know I will at some point, but right now what I know is that he is home, that he is um, acclimating to, the, to the, you know, the best of his ability, that he's now in, in trucking school, that he is trying to um, you know, just, just take it one day at a time and take good care of himself. 
Um, but you know, we, you're right. We, he, he got out, escaped. I mean, of course the right time to get out would have been, right. um, you know, six, six years, years ago. ago. Right. But, um, he got out just before we began to learn about how the spread was impacting folks who are incarcerated. And, um, you know, I've been on a bunch of calls with activists here in Illinois who are trying to, you know, catalog what's happening and make sure they archive it and, you know, publicize all kind of information to make sure that it, that that doesn't, you know, escape public view that, you know, prison issues generally tend to escape public view, right? right. By design, even right. down to like where they're located. Like you, you don't put a prison next to the, the, to the H&M. You don't put it next to the Starbucks. You don't put it next to, right. you know, whatever your tourist attraction is. You put it way away, tucked away in some rural community where folks don't have to see it or deal with it. So this, I think that activist folks are really trying to trying to stay on top of what's happening with with incarcerated people in COVID, given that we there are all these examples of ways in which people try to not see right. um, the the prison problem, and you know I I just feel so much uh, I have so much I love for for families who you know have incarcerated folks right now, and <clears throat> I can't yeah. I just, I, my heart goes out to, to folks who uh, who would love on somebody who is incarcerated right now. Yeah. The, the experience itself is awful, tragic. Nobody should ever experience being incarcerated, loving on somebody who's incarcerated. But this moment, wow, just puts a whole other layer on, yeah. on what's going on. Well, you know, I uh, my son Chesa, who's a district attorney in San Francisco, has reduced the, the jail population by over 40% in two months. Um, It's something that should happen nationwide. And you know, Chase's other father is in prison in New York State. So I I feel what you're saying. And and I want you to, uh, I'm so happy for you, for your mom, for your whole family and for Chris. And uh, please give him my best wishes and tell him I hope to see him soon as soon as this lockdown is over. We'll have a big dinner and celebrate Chris. Uh, Listen, Crystal, uh, I wanna just, Thank you so much. This is Crystal Laura. Her book is Being Bad, My Baby Brother, and the School to Prison Pipeline. You really should read it. Um, it's instructive on a thousand levels. And just as Crystal was saying here, it ends with a very, very clear sense of what we could all be doing to, to disrupt and dismantle the School to Prison Pipeline. So, Crystal, thank you for spending so much time with me. Really appreciate thank you, for you on a, me. appreciate you on a thousand levels. Um, talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Let's move on to our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, where we look at schools and education from the inside with our dynamic reporter, Light Eilee. She's a writer and an artist, a critical observer and a mini ethnographer. She's 12 years old and in the sixth grade. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty. Good to be back. It's nice to hear your voice. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about before quarantine. I know sixth grade is a a kind of a interesting moment in school life. You're at the beginning of middle school. Everybody's kind of going through puberty. You're becoming an adolescent. but I know you told me once that you had a uh, person come in and do a kind of sex ed visiting lecture. Maybe yes. you tell us that story a little bit. Um, 
I don't, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure where they got this teacher. Um, I don't know where she was hired from, but it was the most awkward class I have well, ever let's attended. Call her, let's call her Miss Johnson. Okay, Miss um, Johnson. So Miss Johnson came and she spoke to the whole sixth grade or just to your class? Um, to my gym class, my PE. Your gym class. So how many kids were there? Um, I would say about 18. And you had what, an hour or half hour with her? Um, my PE class is 40 minutes. Okay, so you had, and it was boys and girls? Yes. That must have made it even more awkward. It was even more awkward, yeah. How did she begin? Um, she began by introducing herself and saying something that sixth graders do not want to hear, which is, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to want to take a little break. And if it gets too awkward for you, um, I, that was a little bit patronizing. And we all felt like we could live through one sex ed <laughs> class without, without taking a break or anything. But You have to run to the, run to the water fountain. Yeah, know, exactly. In 40 minutes, I don't know what she was thinking. But so she began by saying, you can giggle, you can laugh, you can take a break. And then yeah. what'd she do? Um, and then she said, "We and remember, we're going to start with the basics. And I will have an anonymous question box next to my desk where you can put your questions without, pe without me knowing that they were yours, which is not a good idea. Why, um, Why not? Well, it's, it's complicated, but something that a lot of um, people put into a unanimous question box, if it's an option, is something ridiculous. I see. Um, so, so kids make fun of it. Yeah, exactly. I see. I see. And they ask goofy things just to get people off track. Yeah. A, a very common, very um, uh, classic one is just D's nuts. Oh, boy. What is, how does Literally that not a question, just D's nuts. That's so that's something, that's something that kids say sometimes just to make some sentence sound goofy? Give me an example. Yeah. Um, an example of... A, of somebody of, using that phrase. How do they use it? Oh, well, eventually the teacher gets used to it. So when, she, when they see it in the box, they will just skip it. I see. So she, while she was like unpacking the question box the first time, she was like... D and then put down the paper I and then de and then put down the paper because it was I just see. that a bunch of times. So eventually she started avoiding them. And so what did she, how did she begin when she began giving kind of her lecture? Um, well, she said, we're going to be talking about the two meanings of sex, sex, the activity and sex, like gender and identity. Okay. That's a good that's way to start. basically how she started. Yeah. And we're, was everybody already smiling? Everyone was torn between being immature and being mature. They couldn't decide which would be more cool. Uh -huh. They couldn't decide if just being mature and fine would make them look older and, and cooler, or if being like sex, haha, -ha, would make them look cooler. But don't you think being 12 is the definition of being 12 is being in between mature and immature? I do think that, yeah. Yeah, I do too. So... So she goes on. She says, we're going to do the basics. Then what does she do? And how do then the kids respond? She says, I'm just going to put this right out on the table. Sex, the activity, usually involves two or more people touching each other's genitals. What? Two or yes. more? 
two or two more. Two or more. That yeah. is so interesting. And she didn't say one? She didn't say one? She did not say one, no. Did that come to your mind? Not exactly. I had other things on my mind. Okay. All right. And then where did she go with that? She, so she gave you a definition. She gave us the definition. And then a boy in my class raised his hand and said, well, at our school, we learn by doing. Oh, my God. He yeah. Did? And he what did. happened? What happened? Like I said before, people were kind of torn between going completely insane and being like, whatever, man, that's not funny. Yeah. I think they went the immature way. Okay, good. And did he, did he leave the class at that point or did he stay? Actually, yes. He decided that that would be a very good time to take a water break and left. <laughs> so did you learn much from the class? Not exactly, but I had a good time. That's great. Did you learn anything you didn't know? Uh, I would say no. Okay. And do you think other kids learn something? I mean, you're a pretty sophisticated 12 year old, so you know a lot and you've read a lot and you've talked to your parents all the time and you have an older sister. So you've probably been, you've been more exposed to stuff than a lot of people. Did some people seem really, really awkward or really, really um, disturbed by the thing or it was just kind of a joke? I didn't pay attention to that really, but some of the questions in the unanimous question box were a little bit concerning. For example? Does sex hurt? Oh, okay. Yeah. And what's another one? Um, what do you do with pubic hair? Oh my God. Yeah, I think they were just asking, like, do you shave it or what? But that, if those were sincere and not jokes, that's concerning I for those think, kids. I think the answer would be braid it. Oh, my God. Okay, thank you. All right, you're welcome. Listen, thanks for sharing that story. Let's, let's get together again soon, and we'll keep talking. Okay. This, this is the good. end of the segment, so thanks for being with me, Lighty. We'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. Before we say farewell for today, I have a homework assignment for you, something that might provoke you to write or draw or enact or sketch or dramatize or simply move inside yourself and meditate. And the, and the homework is to think about, am I a moral person? When did I last face a moral dilemma and how did I resolve it? Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo. Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise, and to my workmate in arms, Malik Alim, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and justice on my mind, until next time. Black Photoscan.